handed, they gave this handout out, and I, uh, I don't know how well you can see that, but at any rate, uh, just some terms that we've been talking about so we can kind of be reminded because these things are hard to keep a grasp on. If you don't talk about them regularly or study them regularly, which none of us do, uh, it's hard to uh, keep in mind everything that they say. Now, we've been talking about the word diet quite a bit. Now, I probably need to be on a diet, but that's not the kind of diet we're talking about. A diet is simply an assembly. And when discussing the Reformation movement in regard to the Catholic Church and the way that it helped political power at the time, uh, from the uh, 1000s up through, uh, uh, well, I mean, even today it holds political power. But anyway, uh, when we talk about the diet, that's simply an assembly. And if we make a statement, the second one up here that you see, diet of worms, worms is actually a, a place, it's a city, a town in Germany. And so the assembly assembled in Germany in the town of worms. And uh, there were a multitude of them. But the diet of worms is significant in our study because that is where they uh, considered Martin Luther at that diet and how they needed to punish him and, and things of that nature. Uh, we talked a lot about the Pope. The Pope refers to himself as Christ's vicar on earth. Now, what that means is he takes the place of Christ. He has all the authority that Christ has, and he has it today. And so that's simply what that means when you hear the term uh, Christ vicar on earth. We talked about some of the first things that led to this uh, uh, Reformation movement, and it was uh, some uh, heresies as far as biblical uh, authority goes in different acts of worship. And the Lord's Supper was one of them. Transubstantiation was uh, brought about. I believe I'd have to go back and look at our notes. Uh, uh, Pope Leo, I think, was the one... Who started might have been innocent. I don't. I don't recall. I'd have to look. But anyway, the idea of transubstantiation is when the emblems are taken, that the actual blood and body of Christ is what is being taken. The the uh, the juice is the blood of Christ, literally. The bread is the body of Christ, literally. We don't eat the body and the blood of Christ. Period. We don't eat it in any way. And that kind of leads us to this next uh, uh, thing regarding the uh, Lord's Supper. Consubstantiation. That's the doctrine that the body and blood of Christ are alongside the emblems. Okay, so this is, uh, instead of literal, this is a spiritual eating the body in the blood of Christ. We don't spiritually eat the body in the blood of Christ. What we do is we eat unleavened bread and we drink the fruit of the vine to memorialize what He did. Consubstantiation is uh, very similar, but it doesn't take the literal form of transubstantiation. Now, transubstantiation, uh, as far as the Catholic Church is considered, that's their doctrine and that's what they teach. Uh, we talked about the confessional. The confessional was another heresy that was uh, uh, foisted upon the, the church. And, of course, the confessional itself is just simply a little box you go sit in. 
But once you sit in that little box, you have a man on the other side of it who claims to have the authority of God to forgive sin. Now, who is it that can forgive sin? Christ. God, right? What man was ever able to forgive sin while on earth? Christ, right? The only person. He was 100% man. He was 100% God. And so the confessional was uh, one of the things that helped bring about this uh, Reformation movement. Now, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, we spent a lot of time talking about indulgences. Indulgences is uh, a way to gain the remission of sin through a certain avenue. Now, up until the uh, 1500s, when it was finally outlawed, uh, it was you you paid money for an indulgence, right? And it got so bad that you didn't go after you had sinned and paid money for an indulgence. You paid in advance. I'm going to go sin. I know I'm going to go sin, so let me pay in advance so I can receive forgiveness. You see it just the snowball gets bigger and bigger, right? Now, we talked about and... Uh, uh, I didn't have a real clear answer, and so I did a little research. Does that happen today? Well, in this form, it doesn't happen today, okay? You don't go just pay money, and you can buy any myriad of indulgences. But here's what you can do. You can make a donation, an offering, and you can receive one indulgence per day. No more than one. Now... The indulgence has no monetary value in the, quote, bad place. Now, that's kind of a generic term, isn't it? Because uh, they do have monetary value as far as the Catholic Church is concerned in the place they call purgatory. Purgatory doesn't exist, of course. I should have put that up there. I didn't even think about it. May I put it on the next one, if you remind me? But anyway... Since we bring up purgatory, purgatory is the is a holding place before you go to uh, paradise or torments. Obviously, if you're going to paradise, you're not going to go to go to purgatory. Okay, but you can buy your way, especially at this time during the Reformation, you can buy someone's freedom out of purgatory. Purgatory was a, simply a place where you had to make penance for the sins in this life before you could be elevated ultimately to go to heaven. But anyway, indulgences were uh, the uh, uh, straw that kind of broke the camel's back. I put catechism up here because we may mention catechism. Catechism is just a series of questions and answers or or precepts or principles uh, that they might put out and they use it in teaching. Someone will, might say, well, well, what is purgatory? Well, that's the question. They give the answer, and through that they teach this doctrine of purgatory. And it could have any number of uh, their beliefs or doctrines in their catechism. Okay? Uh, yes? <coughs> Physical. Yeah, physical. That's the, uh, uh, that would. Yeah, in, in a sense. And that, now that's just their official, that was their official definition to it, okay? You gotta keep that in mind. 
And of course, it like anything else, it just ballooned out of control. Okay? And so initially, that did take the uh, punishment that, you know, maybe they might, you know, Martin Luther was excommunicated, right? Well, that was a temporal punishment from the Catholic Church. And so, for him to be able to have uh, saved himself from that, he would have had to have got himself some indulgences. I don't know how many he'd have to bought for that, you know, because he made a pretty big splash in the Catholic Church and irritated them pretty, pretty good. You know, because he stood up against a lot of their false teaching. But yeah, that's that, that's one aspect of it. But as again, as we see, it goes into the uh, to the spirit realm as well. Does that make sense? But um, you know what that tells us is uh, that their laws and regulations are very fluid. But that's part of uh, of their. Uh, uh, for instance, they're papal bulls, right? We talked about papal bulls. That was simply a public decree in some way, whether in writing or or a written statement. And it got this name, papal bull, from the seal placed on it, a leaden seal. Okay, it was a bulla. So it was a papal bulla, and finally it was just a papal bull. And... Uh, you know, that may be a very good way to describe the contents of what those normally were, you know. But that points to this fact that they were continually changing, you know. It's laid down uh, uh, this particular decree. Well, you know, later on they might make a decree that contradicted the one before it or one a hundred years before it or whatever. So when we look at these kind of definitions... It's, uh, you know, what their official definition would be. But that doesn't mean that's how they still view it or how they still handle it. Of course, uh, John Wycliffe, we talked about him, the early reformer, what they call him, the morning star of the Reformation. He's kind of the first one got it going. He began to translate the Bible. Uh, William Tyndale did the same thing. He was translating the Bible into English, gave his life for that. Uh, they killed him, dug up his bones, and burned his bones. And uh, then we're uh, in the process right now of talking about Martin Luther, the German reformer, who began to see some problems in the Catholic Church and wanted to, just as as the name indicates, reform the church. What happens when you reform something? Reform means you go back to its pure state, right? Uh You've got something that's that's adequate or good, and it gets off track, and you reform, right? It, it, you you reform. You go back to the form you were previously. Well, you know what good was it going to do them to reform the Catholic Church? Well, they're no good at all, right? That's why when we get over to the Restoration, we want to restore the New Testament church, right? Restore Christ church, not reform a denomination. <clears throat> That's been going on since denominations been in the world, haven't it? They're reforming all the time, going to a changing form to do something else. But at any rate, uh, those are just some, uh, some uh, words and things we need to keep in mind, some people. Now, I'll make a few more of these as we go along and hand them out and we can have them. That way when we 
when we hear something, it's hard to keep in our mind all the time, again, unless we're studying this every day, which none of us are, to always remember what these terms mean. See, well, any, any questions or comments or anything, maybe I didn't cover something that that uh, we need to cover to refresh our memories. <coughs> None of these Reformation leaders ever saw the truth. None of them ever became New Testament Christians. Okay? Uh, some of them uh, obviously joined the Protestant movement. And we're, going to get, we're getting ready to talk about the Protestant movement a little bit that was within the Reformation. But no, Martin Luther never... Uh, became a New Testament Christian, as either did those anyone else we've talked to up to this point. In fact, Martin Luther wanted to hold on, and we're going to notice that in a few moments, to some very Catholic traditions and doctrines. And he had a very dangerous theology himself that we're going to notice. And uh, but but here's the one thing about Martin Luther that uh, to me is very interesting because today. There is a denomination in the world named after Martin Luther and his teachings. Lutheranism, right? The Lutheran Church. Uh, do we have, don't we have a Lutheran Church here on Hicks and Pike? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, but one of the last things that, uh, not, not even just one of the last things, a continual thought that Martin Luther had was don't call yourself after me. He didn't want, people to be called after somebody. He wanted people to follow Christ and His doctrine. And you have to give it to Him for that. You know, I think we owe Martin Luther a debt of gratitude. The same with William Tyndale and every everyone else we're going to study. And there were a multitude of people that, that lent themselves to this rest, uh, Reformation movement, which led to the Restoration movement. Now, they never became New Testament Christians that I'm aware of. But that doesn't mean that we don't owe them a debt of gratitude. I think their work was was providential, at least in my opinion, leading to uh, the uh, getting back to the Bible. You know, you got to have it's kind of a process, isn't it? But it's a process. Anytime someone uh, becomes a Christian, isn't it? You don't go from I'm no Christian today, and then. Tomorrow you hear about Christ and I become a Christian. Normally, that's not how it goes, is it? You have some questions, you have to learn, you have to digest, right? Now, uh, you know, if uh, some people are at different places in their lives and they may be able to uh, comprehend or digest something, and I don't mean comprehend as in the person's not uh, intellectually capable, I just mean, you know, we learn at different different rates, right? And... Uh, uh, so some people pick it up a little quicker. It's like that with anything, you know. took me a little longer to pick up math. It didn't take Charles very long to pick it up. He's pretty good at it, right? took me a lot longer. So we, we learn at different rates, and it's like that with, with anything we do. So I think we owe him a great debt of gratitude, absolutely. Uh, any, any other comments or questions? Okay, now when we left off last time, we were talking about Martin Luther and the break that he had made. He finally made this break, no return. He had irritated the uh, the Catholic Church, and uh, <clears throat> he had to go into hiding. Right? He 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 uh, went into hiding with the with the uh, uh, name of Junker George. Quit wearing his uh, his uh, whatever his, his uh, monk clothing. And uh, began to grow his beard out, and 
so he uh, he spent his time uh, writing, translating, and as this process unfolded, people began to latch on to his teaching. And so in Martin Luther's mind, it wasn't up until this point. Remember, we've been studying him uh, for years now, chronologically, for years. He's finally come to the point where he says, maybe Reformation is possible because he hadn't been there up to this point. And so he's, you know, maybe it can be attempted. And so in Wittenberg, where Luther was kind of headquartered before he was run out of town, it became kind of the center of the Reformation movement in Germany. Even in his absence, it carried on with the teachings and the principles uh, that he had uh, uh, been introducing. Now, the people began to latch on to this. These new ideas began to erupt from their minds. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, Luther preached against this idea of mass, you know, coming together, and that's a... Uh, a ceremony that the Catholic Church uh, participates in. They come through and they give the the laity, this the common member, uh, the uh, the emblem of the cracker, the unleavened bread, and uh, they never gave them the the juice part. Right? The the priest kept the wine for himself. That was one of the problems. That's one of the things these Reformation people taught against. We need, they said we need to be able to partake of the emblems both kinds. Unless absolutely necessary. We'll notice that here in a few moments. But anyway, these things began to happen. Now, he taught against this practice of mass, but he continued to participate in it. See, he was very conflicted, but it was catching hold among the people. So they began to teach against it. They declared that uh, you ought to abolish mass, that in fact if you participate in it, that it's a sin. And so his teachings began to grow. Also, uh, priests began to marry. Luther talked about that. So priests began to marry. Monks began to leave the monastery. So you can kind of see how the Catholic Church is beginning to suffer from attrition. It's breaking down. It's losing a lot of... uh, uh, it's adherence, okay? So the the monks began to leave the monasteries at the colleges. They began to dress in, in common clothing. Images and idols were condemned. And that's one of the things we think about the Catholic Church. You know, one of the first things we think about is, is a depiction of, of Christ on the cross, right? The crucifix. People wear it around their necks. They have it up. It's, it's an idolatrous denomination is what it is. And, uh, you know... They're always praying to, uh, you know, who's their primary person they pray to? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, the mother of God, right? But all kinds of saints, and they hold them up to uh, be be uh, in positions above the normal people, right? That's why they have this division of laity. We would be laity. Well, the priest is clergy, right? Has that carried over? Every denomination that I'm aware of in the world makes a distinction between the common folk, the laity, and the clergy. Listen, you go to the hospital, 
Most of them have a parking spot closer to the door for the clergy. Do I take advantage of that? Absolutely. It's got nothing to do with uh, my uh, support of that. It's just closer to the door. I hardly ever get one, though. It's always someone else has got it, got it took up. I don't even know if they're part of the clergy or not, you know. But at any rate, uh, that's carried over. And so the people began to um, uh, uh, fight against that. Now, there was another man came along. His name, his last name was Karlstadt, C-A-R, C-A-R-L-S-T-A-D-T. And he took the lead in a whole lot of these things. Now, we've already talked about the Lord's Supper, okay, how they had changed the Lord's Supper. And so what he decided, he said he was going to, uh, begin to celebrate the Lord's Supper after the ancient manner. What's the ancient manner? Every Sunday. First day of the week, right? He didn't really understand what the ancient manner is because that's not what he did, but he began to observe it, and uh, he was going to celebrate it that way, but uh, he had picked a time to do it. I think it was... Uh, uh, after a particular time when the new year was going to start, and so he wasn't going to be dedicated to every first day of the week. How many religious organizations are you aware of that observe the Lord's Supper every first day of the week? We're the only ones who do it properly. The church of the New Testament does it properly. When I say we, I mean the, the New Testament church. Mormon church celebrates uh, what they call the Lord's Supper every Sunday. They use water and loaf bread. Okay, that's leavened bread, isn't it? They use water. So that's inaccurate. Might as well do it once a year or twice a year, right? I mean, if we're not going to do it properly. But uh, as far as doing it properly, the only the only organization I'm aware of that does it properly is the New Testament church. We read about the New Testament. Okay? And that's, uh, that's the Lord's church, Church of Christ. But... All this stuff began to happen, and so, have you ever heard of buyer's remorse? You go buy a car, 30 minutes down the road, you're saying, what in the world did I, cannot believe I did that. You buy a house, a month later something tears up, you're saying, boy, I wish I hadn't done that, renting is so much better, right? Luther kind of had buyer's remorse. He got to watching everything that was going on, he said, wait, wait a minute, this thing's moving way too fast. Way too fast. So he wanted to kind of slow it down a little bit. And he resented that uh, the people were catching on. In fact, he began to reprove them for practicing what he preached. So that gives us a little insight into Martin Luther too, doesn't it? He, he had some pretty good ideas you know, of being able to identify some wrongs, but when it got right down to it, Luther really wanted himself and the people kind of be able to do what they wanted to do without the Roman church bothering them. If they wanted to continue to do certain things, that's okay. But don't tell us we can't or we have to or whatever. So he began to resent these people. And uh, so it wasn't by Luther that these things began to be put into practical use. It was by a different type of person. <clears throat> Luther wasn't that person. He was an idea man, 
but he wasn't a man to put anything into uh, uh, practice. Had it not been for those people, Luther's writing would have simply remained Luther's writings, right? Nothing would have happened. Nothing would have started. It would have just still been the same old thing over and over again. He was very weak in that aspect of his, quote, faith. Any comments, questions? All right, let's notice something else. We're almost through with Luther. Luther returned from Wartburg, where he was, he's hidden out, back to Wittenberg in the early part of 1522. Okay, Now, uh, that's not too long before what's known as the German Peasant Wars happened. Okay, I think they happened a couple years after this. We'll mention them briefly. We're not going to spend a lot of time with it here in a little while. But... Uh, he returned uh, to Wittenberg in 1522, and there was one other thing that the folks wanted to kind of get going to make this Reformation complete. They wanted to do away with infant baptism. Luther wouldn't hear of it. They, they and rightly so, <coughs> determined that an infant is not sinful. An infant has no need uh, to be baptized. Now here in a little while we're start talking about this Protestant movement we're going to be introduced to our old friend John Calvin okay, who made a big impact. Of course he embraced this idea of infant baptism. But anyway he uh, uh, had this movement wanting to uh, do away with this infant baptism but while he was in Wartburg, prior to going back to Wittenberg, as he was translating the Bible, he came to another idea. He decided that he would not condemn and that no one should condemn anything that is not explicitly condemned in the Bible. <clears throat> is infant baptism explicitly condemned in the Bible? There's no command that says, Thou shalt not baptize infants. Thou shalt not kill Shall not commit adultery, shall not covet. Uh, you can't have any other gods. But there's nothing that says, Thou shalt not baptize an infant. So, why should we be opposed to that? Well, I guess it comes down to understand. Do you have something? Okay. Absolutely. And I think that's the correct answer. Why, why do we not, why, why do we, uh, uh, not condone infant baptism? Because it is inferred or implied that it is sinful. Now, that brings us to trying to understand where we get our authority. How do we ascertain authority, right? Well, Luther understood if it was a direct commandment, if it was explicitly commanded, that was a commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Okay? Really, thou shalt do no murder is the proper translation there. Killing is not necessarily necessarily sinful. Murder is always sinful. Anyway, uh, so you have a direct commandment. What what other uh, thing could we come up with? Is there a, is there an explicit commandment in the Bible that says you meet on the first day of the week on Sunday? It's not there. But what is there? 
an example, right? An example of on the first day of the week when you come together to take the Lord's Supper and to give of your means. So we have to come together. And that's how we know that we don't take the Lord's Supper on Saturday night. We don't take up a collection on Wednesday or any time we have a, quote, revival, Right? That's something the denominations, they don't get that correct. They won't, you know, they, they won't take the Lord's Supper, but once or twice a year or, or every quarter or something, but they'll take, they'll pass the hat every time they come together, right? And so, uh, we have an example, but then we have this idea of a necessary inference, and that's what Kathy was talking about. The necessary inference means that it is specifically implied, and that's the idea we ought to come away with. And I always like to use this uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, when you come together to uh, uh, give, to collect money, uh, that's a call to treasury, isn't it? If you have a treasury, what do you have? Treasurer. Someone to watch over the money. Everybody can't be writing the checks, right? Or counting out the money. We know that it's not wrong to have a treasurer. Guess who was a treasurer among the apostles? Judas, right? He was a thief and a treasurer. Not wrong to be a treasure, wrong to be a thief, right? And so, uh, Clay's our treasurer here at White Oak. He writes the checks. And so, uh, uh, we have a treasury, so it's a necessary inference to know that we need a treasurer to, to keep up with that treasury, right? We all can't be keeping up with the treasury. It's kind of like having too many cooks in the kitchen, right? You can't keep up with anything that way. How much salt did you put in? I didn't put in any. Okay, well, I'm going to put some in. Well, the fifth cook over here already put in a half a box of salt, so maybe you put, you know, we don't need more. And so that's the idea, right? And uh, so that's what uh, what I do at my house. I'm not the treasurer at my house. I don't fool with that. Nicole's the treasurer. I let her write the checks. You know, if you got 25 people writing checks, I'm not real good about writing it down. I might write a check, and I might not write it down. So, you know, sometimes I write checks, but I don't even know where the checkbook is. I have to ask, right? Now, I have a bank card, so I have access. I don't like to even use that. But anyway, so it's, it's, it's a necessary inference. So it's necessarily inferred. If Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized, you have to be of the appropriate age, to be able to believe. Now, he that believeth, and that's ongoing, that's a present tense verb in the Greek, that's an ongoing action that I continue to believe. I have to first have, have the mental capacity to understand what Jesus Christ is teaching. How many babies have that mental capacity besides zero? Zero, right? Zero. And so, that's the problem when Luther came up with this idea that we're only going to not do things that are specifically denied in the Bible, okay? Well, <clears throat> that brings on all kinds of problems. Uh, does the Bible say anything about use of cocaine or methamphetamine or marijuana or, uh, you know, uh, any of you that have ever read the Harry Potter books, Fire, Whiskey? Doesn't say anything about any of that stuff, does it? But what does it say? Sober minded. Sober minded. So it is necessarily inferred. Now it talks about 
abstaining from alcoholic drink, okay? And so I guess fire whiskey would fall under that. But, uh, you know, when, when the Bible usually, the alcohol they drank normally was wine from the grape, right? But, so if you're going to be sober-minded, what, what does that mean you can't be using? Cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, marijuana, any other kind of LSD, any other kind of drug that uh, is out there that alters the mind, okay? What, what do pe- how do people normally behave when they have their minds altered? Like a bunch of idiots, don't they? If your mind is altered, you're not who you are, and you'll do things you would not normally do. And uh, you're, we're supposed to be sober-minded at all times, right? Does that mean we can't take uh, some kind of uh, medication the doctor's given us that may alter the mind? No, that's not what it means at all. We have to take it according to the prescription, right? How many of y'all, uh, when you take Benadryl, you just about got to go to bed? A lot of people have to do that, right? I'm not one of them. But a lot of people, this kind of knocks them out. You know, uh, have you ever had uh, Fenergan or, or something like that for upset stomach? You know, you're, you're sick and nauseated and they give you some Fenergan. Sure, you know, that's a, a Fenergan is actually a muscle relaxer. And so... Uh, that alters the state of mind. Is there anything wrong with taking that? Well, no, it's not wrong taking it if you're taking it according to what the doctor has prescribed. That's why Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for thy stomach's sake, right? Paul prescribed him some medication that otherwise would be wrong for Timothy to take. So when we, when we sit down and we say, well, we're not going to outlaw anything other than what is specifically outlawed. Well, you take the Lord's Supper every day of the week then. Because it's not specifically outlawed. You can take up a collection every day of the week. It's not specifically outlawed. And we see that happening throughout the denominational world, right? You can uh, uh, baptize babies. You can do all sorts of things. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it right. So that was a flaw in Martin Luther's uh, <clears throat> theological thinking. And it all boiled down to the reason that was the case is he was weak. He was weak. He kind of helped start this movement through his teaching, but he didn't want to stand up and help the movement come to fruition and come to reality. So that showed a great weakness on his part. Any uh, any comments, questions? Uh, he felt if, if he continued down this road, way of thinking a complete revolution would come about and that's what did happen and it would mean uh letting infant baptism go but if you let infant baptism go he understood the state church would go too and he didn't want he still wasn't at this point where he was going to give up catholicism he wanted to take it back to its pure state you know where you didn't abuse indulgences indulgences were fine as long as they weren't abused the confessional was fine as long as it wasn't abused. How much sense does that make? And uh, <clears throat> because of all of that, he dismissed all these questions, inopportune questions. And by doing that, he continued to embrace Mass, offering Mass for those who'd already even died. All these other things, uh, purgatory, infallibility of the Pope, any of the other unauthorized things, that the Catholic Church did. So 
In essence, he was still throwing his support behind that. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, what happens when good men do nothing? Just fill in the blank, right? That's what happens. If good men do not stand up against evil and wickedness and wrongdoing, whether it's in the realm of religion or not, right? What happens if you don't stand up against slavery? Well, it would still be in existence today, right? I mean, it would be wholesale. But see, good men stood up against that, good men and women. And so the same thing is true with, uh, 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 you know, religious matters. What, ha- what would happen if we didn't stand up against abortion? If, if the religious, quote, religious right didn't stand up against abortion, we'd have more than 50 million killed over the last uh, uh, almost 50 years. More than 50 years. We'd have more than that, right? But because good people did stand up to try their best to prevent that, it did curtail it in a lot of ways. Now we're really seeing some things happening in our nation, especially in the southern states, aren't we, with uh, this idea of abortion being put aside and trying to fight harder against it. Any comments, questions? Okay, we're done with Martin Luther. We could have spent 10 years on Martin Luther, same as with Wycliffe and, and the others. But what we're going to do now, we're going to move into, and we're out of time, but we're going to move into another aspect of the Reformation movement, which is Protestantism, okay? Uh, the Reformation led to uh, the Protestant uh, movement. Protestant, simply protesting a particular thing. You can be a Protestant in a whole lot of areas, right? Of course, we uh, more familiarly connect that to religion, but you can protest anything. You can be a Protestant as long as you're protesting something, right? We're all Protestants, really, but uh, we're going to look at it from the religious sense of the different groups that began to emerge, the different denominations, because of this Protestant movement that was a part of this Reformation movement. Any comments or questions before we close? Brother Joe. That's exactly right. He was uh, he was all talk. He was all talk. When when the pressure came on, now he stood up. He was brave. We've noticed that he was brave in, in a lot of ways. You know, he stood up against the papal bulls and and which decreed that his he was to be killed. He stood up against that. But what happened with Luther? is he had some things that he still held as, as uh, things to be revered, right? And so he didn't want to cut into what he held as revered. He, he disagreed with, with uh, quote, the abuse of indulgences, but he didn't disagree with indulgences themselves, right? He, he didn't like the Pope uh, going beyond his power, but he still didn't disagree with there needing to be a Pope, right? So... You're right, you know, he, he had a lot of good ideas, but what he taught necessarily led to the abolition of the Catholic Church. If, if what he taught had been followed through, it would have been just done away with. Right? And in fact, his adherents did away with it. They started a denomination of their own, right? And so, but you're right, he, he was talk and no action, really. Is what he was. Kind of reminds me of present day politicians. They'll run on everything in the world and they get into office and nothing happens. You know, nothing happens. And so that's kind of how Martin Luther was. I think you're right. Good comment. Anything else? 
All right, we'll pick up here next time. Thank you so much.